For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. So the adversary, part two, Revelation chapter 12, and we're looking at verses one through six. So in chapter 12 now, the apostle John, God's eschatological or end times prophet, uh, the prophet to our age, John is given a vision of two great signs now appearing in heaven. The great signs that John sees here in chapter 12 are visual, they are symbolic representations of spiritual realities. That's the way that we're supposed to look at these signs. They're representations, symbols of those spiritual realities that lie behind the conflicts that the church faces during the time of our tribulation in the wilderness. The troubles that we face, uh, what lies behind those troubles are principalities and powers. What lies behind those troubles are spiritual realities that we can't see with our eyes. We don't hear with our ears. We don't experience those things with our senses, but they are true and we understand them because God reveals them to us in his word. And he reveals them through these symbols that are given here in particular, Revelation chapter 12, to the apostle John. So these signs in Revelation then, they transcend their earthly referent, right? They transcend their temporal referent and they point us to spiritual realities that exist beyond the perception of our five senses, right? They, they extend beyond or transcend the, our perception of this realm and they speak of the existence of another realm. They point us to the reality of a realm that is not accessible to our sight, hearing, touch, taste, or smell. It's, uh, they're pointing us to a realm that even now, outside of our perception, is impacting and influencing the realm in which we now live, work, witness, and worship. And it's that invisible realm that is now brought into view through these signs depicted for us in truths communicated to us by the word of God, particularly here in the book of Revelation. Truths that would remain hidden to us unless God had revealed them to us through these signs and through the testimony of his eyewitnesses. So in the first half of the book of Revelation, those signs, those visions are given to the apostle John uh, to reveal spiritual activities, spiritual forces that lie behind the judgments that are experienced in the world and behind the warfare experienced by the church. That's what took place in the first half of Revelation chapters one through 11. Those um, signs depict for us spiritual realities that lie behind those judgments. Here in the second half of Revelation now, beginning with the fourth cycle of the book and here in Revelation chapter 12, these signs, these visions now depict the ultimate cause behind all of those spiritual realities, right? The ultimate cause of those judgments, the ultimate cause of that warfare, the ultimate cause of that conflict. And what lies behind them all, as we see in this section of the book, is the work of our great adversary, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So in our text this afternoon, John is introducing to us these two great signs that he sees in heaven. And these signs give us an explanation, if you will, a depiction of what's going on behind the scenes, orchestrated, working together, according to the working of Satan, according to the working of our adversary uh, during this age. So in verse one, then we see those signs. A great sign appeared in heaven. 
The first of those great signs, a woman, verse one, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Then the second of those signs is seen in verse three. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, 10 horns, and seven diadems on his heads. So John then sees two signs, right? And those signs are revealed from heaven. If you remember from last week, they're revealed from that realm of the transcendent, right? They're revealed from that realm in which God is revealed as enthroned, uh, that realm in which God is revealed as administering his government or his rule. God has now given all authority to the son. All authority has been given to him. So it's the realm from which the Lord Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the majesty is seen as administering God's decrees during this age. If you remember in the, the cycle of the seals, he took the scroll from the hand of him who was seated on the throne and he began to loose the seven seals. And as he loosed the seven seals, there were judgments that were poured out upon the earth. Well, what is the Lord Jesus Christ doing? The Lord Jesus Christ has entered the throne room. He's come on the clouds of heaven. He's approached the ancient of days. He's received the kingdom. He's received all authority and he takes the scroll. The only one worthy, he takes the scroll from the right hand of him who's seated on the throne and he begins to execute the decrees in the scroll. So heaven is that transcendent realm from which this government takes place, all right? That's what we're seeing here uh, in Revelation 12. It's a place from which Jesus Christ is enthroned, executing those decrees. And it's these two signs then, not only seen in heaven, but revealed from heaven, right? Revealed from heaven. It's these two signs that reveal now a great conflict that exists between a woman and a dragon. And this conflict has to do with the male child that the woman is going to bear. As we'll see, it's not a fictional conflict. As we'll see and understand, it's not a far off conflict. The signs reveal a very present warfare. It's a very present conflict that although is ancient in its origin, is present even in the age in which we live. It's present even in the church today. It's a conflict that directly involves the church during this age. So it's very helpful. Right? It helps us to understand the nature of the conflicts, the nature of the difficulties that we face. And these signs reveal that to us. We're not only engaged in a spiritual battle with our old man. That's not our only warfare, right? We're not only engaged in a battle that is merely with the temptations that we face in this world. We are facing an enraged dragon. <laughs> uh, our battle, our conflict involves an enraged devil. And Revelation 12 helps supply us with some weapons for our warfare, so we'll look at that as we go. So in verse one then, we're introduced to this woman, a sign in heaven, this woman. And this woman is described by her appearance and described by her condition, her appearance and her condition. Both her appearance and her condition are very significant. And I want us to see that. So as you would expect from our study of Revelation to this point, these signs, these symbols, they're not drawn out of the air. Um, they're... they're drawn from the inkwell, if you will, will, of the Old Testament. It's as though John is dipping his quill in the Old Testament and writing in ink in the New Testament, right? He goes back to the Old Testament, even back to New Testament revelation in order to draw from that revelation in supplying uh, what we see depicted in Revelation chapter 12 in particular. So as we would expect from our study of Revelation, he's going to be pulling from the Old Testament and several Old Testament reference points 
uh, when it comes to these signs. As the last book of God's revealed word, we understand that Revelation is the capstone of the canon. Revelation is consistently, constantly connecting previous types and shadows to their development or to their ultimate fulfillment. John takes, or the Lord, in revealing these things to us. He's continuously connecting old types and shadows, and he's further developing those types and shadows or pointing forward to their full and final fulfillment in the book of Revelation. So what we're seeing is those types and shadows coming to their fulfillment. That's what we would expect to see with these signs. So we would expect the signs then, the symbols that are used here, will not only have roots in previous revelation, but we should expect that the signs and symbols used here would be understood from previous revelation. If we want to know what these things mean, we have to go to previous revelation to understand them. Uh, we're not to speculate. We can go back to the Bible and figure that out. So where do we, when we see this image of the woman, for example, in the beginning, both her appearance and her condition, where do we find the roots of this sign or this symbol? Where do we find the basis for this particular image? Well, first, consider with me her appearance. Verse one, she is a woman who is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. We should expect that we can go back to prior revelation and get a picture of what that is communicating to us. So with that, turn with me to Genesis 37. Let's look at Genesis 37 together. And this picture comes predominantly from Genesis 37. There's, there are a few texts that this uh, picture is derived from. Uh, Genesis 37 is the predominant text. And there's also uh, extra biblical writing among the Jews that is helpful in this case also. But for now, we turn to Genesis chapter 37, and we begin there at verse 1 to help us understand this picture of the woman. Verse 1, Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan, and this is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph a, brought a bad report of them to his father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Joseph was his favorite. And because he was the son of his old age, also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, his brothers hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. They were envious of Joseph and they showed contempt for Joseph. Verse five. Now then, Joseph had a dream. And he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down, bowed down to my sheaf. So think with me now, um, 12 sheaves in total, right? Representing the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 11 brothers of Joseph and Joseph, 12 sheaves. Verse eight, and his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And we know this dream has a context. If you, were, if you remember the story of Joseph, you re read through that section of the Bible. I commend it to you, it's very good. Um, if you read through that section of scripture, then you know that the story, and this would actually be fulfilled in the life of Joseph. His 11 brothers would come and bow down to him as he is second in command over all of Egypt. All right, so we know that this has a historical referent point. We're also gonna see this as it pertains to the woman in Revelation 12. 
So in verse nine, he has another dream. He dreamed still another dream, verse nine, and told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bow down to me. 12 stars in total, right? Joseph is the 12th. This again represents the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, verse 10. He told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So Jacob understood the implications of the dream, didn't he? Jacob understood that the sun and the moon were a reference to Jacob and his wife and that the stars were representative of the 12 sons of Jacob. So he, Jacob himself, interpreted the dream as the sun and the moon, Jacob and his wife, the 12 stars being the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. So I would submit to you, and again, what is happening in Revelation chapter 12 is that John is looking back, or there is um, Revelation 12, and the images, the symbols that are being used in Revelation are relying upon previous revelation, in order to inform our understanding of what the images mean in Revelation, in particular Revelation 12. So I would submit to you that the stars are emblematic of God's people. Right, that's what they are emblematic of in Genesis 37. Genesis 37 informs our understanding of Revelation chapter 12. The same language is used because that connection is intentional. It's not accidental. It's nothing accidental in the word of God, right? It's not accidental. It's not that, oh, here's this woman. Uh, I wonder if there's anything in the Bible that we compare and we just so happen to find that there's a story in Genesis 37. It's not how it works. Uh, these connections are intended by God. God with, his, with infinite wisdom has authored scripture and has made these connections clear for us. So there is a precedent then set in scripture of referring to God's people as the stars of heaven. We see this in particular of Jacob and his sons, the tribes of Israel, but we see that in many places in the Bible where God's people are referred to as the stars of heaven, comparing God's people to the stars. In Genesis 15, God brought Abraham outside and said to him, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Right? That, that statement, your descendants will be as the stars of heaven. In one sense, in the, in the first sense, talking about the, their number, innumerable as the stars of heaven, but also a, a deeper reference than that. That particular statement, that particular promise of God would reverberate throughout the first, uh, the opening books of the Bible. In particular, Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. We find that comparison all over the place. It's going to be repeated again in the New Testament, and in particular in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, in Hebrews chapter 11 from verse 12, listen to this. He says, therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, he's talking about Abraham, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And again, he makes this reference to the, the, the people of God being compared to the stars of heaven. Jewish writings uh, of the time referred to Abraham and Sarah and referred to their descendants as the sun, the moon, and the stars. So in Jewish writings, Abraham was the sun, Sarah was the moon, and the descendants of Abraham were as the stars of heaven. The angels of God are referred to as stars. We'll see that specifically in verse four, uh, Revelation 12, verse four. The Jews refer to them this way, in part because the stars were seen as sanctified or set apart from the world. 
So set apart from the impurity or the immorality of this world. They were sanctified or set apart to God. And so the stars were seen for their purity. They were set apart from shame, set apart from dishonor. In Daniel chapter 12, verse three, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. The Song of Solomon refers to Solomon's queen, which he associates with Jerusalem in chapter six, associates Solomon's queen with being as fair as the moon, as clear or as pure as the sun and set as awesome among a procession of many stars. You'll see it there in Solomon, Song of Songs, chapter six, as a procession of banners. The word literally refers to stars. So sees Solomon's queen, Solomon, Solomon's queen as the sun, moon, and the people of God as the stars set among a setting of stars. So the woman then in Revelation chapter 12, verse one, appears to be clothed and she's clothed with the celestial garments of the people of God. The great patriarchs, you could say, the heavenly Jerusalem, descending as it were as a bride, like a bride adorned for her husband, clothed with purity and radiance as the sun, her authority demonstrated by the fact that the moon is under her feet, her royalty uh, indicated or demonstrated by a garland of 12 stars upon her head, those 12 stars representing the people of God. She is set apart to God in the firmament as it were, the stars shining as lights atop a lamp. So additionally, everywhere in scripture, the number 12 is also significant. So the fact that she's wearing a garland of 12 stars is also significant and significant for the people of God. There were 12 sons of Jacob, right? We see 12 stars, 12 sheaves in Joseph's dreams, the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses erected 12 pillars at the foot of the mountain, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 stones sewn into the ephod of the priest, carrying the name of the sons of Israel across his breast. There were 12 loaves on the table in the tabernacle. There were 12 oxen under the bronze sea. There were 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan. There were 12 lions next to the throne of Solomon, right? There were 12 apostles. 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, the Lord says. The heavenly Jerusalem is described as having 12 gates, 12 angels seated at the gates. Written on them are the, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The city will have 12 foundations written on them are the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. So everywhere that number 12, very significant. And not only is the number 12 significant to denote the people of God, but the number 12 is often used to equate or to connect the new people, New Testament people of God with the Old Testament people of God, right? As one people. So that's significant that 12 not only refers to the 12 sons of Jacob, but also refers to the 12 apostles and why the 12 gates in the heavenly Jerusalem are matched by 12 foundations. In other words, 12, not only representative of God's people at one particular age in redemptive history, but across all ages in redemptive history. It connects the Old Testament and the New Testament, the people of God across both ages. So we'll see then working through the chapter that the woman in Revelation 12 doesn't only then represent the Old Testament people of God, but the woman in Revelation chapter 12 represents the New Testament people of God as well. We are one people, do you see? One people. Represented by this woman with a garland of 12 stars upon her head, we're represented by that woman in Revelation chapter 12. So chapter 12 presents the woman as incorporating or representing the people of God living both before and after the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
She is, you could say in Revelation 12, she is the embodiment of God's covenant promise to Abraham and to his seed. She becomes the embodiment of God's covenant promise to his to Abraham and his seed, that from his descendants would come a Messiah who would gather a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And it's this woman who is later persecuted by the dragon in verse 13. After the male child is caught up to God and to his throne, this woman flees into the wilderness. She has other children who are described there as faithful, and he persecutes her children. So again, this woman represents not only Old Testament Jews, but also represents the New Testament people of God, represents the people of God across all ages. So in verse one then, a great sign appeared in heaven. This woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. That's her appearance. Then notice next, her condition. Her condition, verse two. Being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So this woman giving birth in pain and distress. Where would that picture originate? That picture originates, as you would expect, in Genesis chapter three. So turn to Genesis chapter three with me. Genesis chapter three. So in consideration of her condition, we look at Genesis chapter three, where in verse 14, we have the words of God to the serpent. This is the curse upon the serpent. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, hostility, and between your seed and her seed. He, seed there is, you're reading um, English translation, obviously, it's uh, the seed is capitalized, it's a pointing forward to Jesus Christ. It's also singular. And he, that's the seed, it's a masculine singular there, shall bruise or strike your head, you shall bruise or strike his heel. So the seed of the woman who will one day deliver that death blow to the head of the serpent is the promised Messiah. We know that from scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ will defeat Satan. He'll deliver that death blow to the head of the serpent uh, in his work at the cross. But as we'll see now in Revelation chapter 12, there's also an application of this text that is both singular, referring to the seed of the woman as Jesus Christ, and plural, referring to those who are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Revelation 12, that picture of the seed is used, used both singular of Jesus Christ and corporately to refer to all of the seed of the woman, those who are in union with Jesus Christ, the people of God. So the serpent doesn't only declare war on the singular seed of the woman, there will be conflict between the corporate seed of the woman and Satan as well. When he is defeated at the cross, in Revelation 12, he goes off to make war with the rest of her seed. And it's during this age, during this age, his objective is to persecute the seed of the woman to persecute those in union with Jesus Christ. So, verse 16, Genesis chapter three, verse 16. To the woman then, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So that sets the context for this delivery that we see in Revelation chapter 12. The woman is crying out in pain, about to deliver a male child. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. 
If you think with me, Eve, meaning the mother of all living, is the immediate reference of that curse in verse 16. So there are those who would make the case that then the woman of Revelation chapter 12 is Eve. Right? They would say she's Eve. Roman Catholics, as you can imagine, have long contended that the woman is, of course, Mary. And the woman in Revelation 12 represents Mary. And although we might include Eve or might include Mary in the concept that's represented in Revelation chapter 12, as we've seen, the woman in Revelation chapter 12 represents the community of God's covenant people. She represents true Israel. She represents an Abrahamic, Davidic, and Messianic line that would eventually yield or give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there may be uh, a way in which the woman in Revelation 12 um, could be said to represent or embody Eve or said to represent or embody Mary. But as we've already seen, the woman represents the people of God across all ages. And it's the people of God that, uh, as it were, give birth to this, uh, this line would give birth to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel, in that sense, Israel as a nation is often depicted as a woman. We see that throughout scripture. Uh, often that woman, Israel, is depicted as the betrothed of God. God says, I will betroth you to me forever. She's often depicted, frankly, as an unfaithful woman, even as a brazen whore in Ezekiel chapter 16. So uh, often Israel, the people of God, are referred to, we know the New Testament church is referred to as the bride of Christ. Right? At the end, we see the bride of Christ, um, uh, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband. And there was also a great deal of pain. If you think about the pain of childbirth, there was a great deal of pain and sorrow associated with Israel bringing forth the Messiah. Uh, Israel travailed in order to bring forth the birth of the Messiah. After the birth, after the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, she is described then as a chaste virgin. She's described as a faithful bride, the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ pays for her sin at Calvary. So what's also interesting then about this woman in Revelation 12, and again, representing all of God's people before and after the coming of Jesus Christ, is that her travail and persecution, her travail and suffering is often referred to as birth pains. In other words, it's this, uh, it's this concept of this woman in birth that is a, a really rich and significant picture uh, in redemptive history and conveys a, a picture's worth a thousand words. This tells us a lot, right? This picture, this symbol uh, gives us a lot. So often, the persecution of God's people, the suffering of God's people, referred to by that language of birth pains. Suffering referred to as birth pains. Terms associated with the pain of childbirth often used to characterize the experience of God's people in their, in their suffering, in their difficulty. And all of that before the birth of a new age, right? Before the birth, if you will, the regeneration that will come at the end of the age. So to use a pun then, the image of the woman in Revelation 12 is pregnant with meaning and significance. <laughs> that picture is very significant. And there are many, many texts in the Bible that allude to this image. So when you're reading your Bible and you come across this picture or this, um, this notion of childbirth, it's pregnant with meaning. There's a lot of significance to that image. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, turn with me to Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. In particular in the prophets, in particular in Isaiah, there's several examples of this picture 
this language being used. It opens with um, a pregnant woman giving birth to a virgin, giving birth to a child, right? In Isaiah chapter seven, we see that picture throughout the prophet Isaiah. Here in verse uh, chapter 26, this is particularly helpful. In chapter 26, the people of God are singing a song of deliverance, right? The Lord is going to deliver them. Verse 16, Isaiah 26, verse 16. Lord, in trouble, they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. Significant, right? We have been with child. We have been in pain. We've been in suffering. And we have, as it were, brought forth wind. We've brought forth nothing. In our own strength, we've been unable to give birth. We've been unable to deliver. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Those inhabitants of the world, those enemies of God, they've not fallen. In other words, Israel, by her own strength, cannot bring any of this about. If there's going to be a birth, if you will, of a deliverance, if there's going to be a deliverance, for example, Israel was delivered out of Egypt. She was birthed out of Egypt, as it were, into the wilderness. Um, she was birthed, as it were, out of Babylon. Um, there will come a birth, if you will, of God's people at the end of the age. Here, they're unable to deliver themselves. They're in captivity, unable to deliver themselves and unable to defeat their enemies. They're entirely powerless, entirely weak. And if the birth is going to take place, God himself is going to have to do it. God is going to have to deliver them. Um, that they are saying essentially, we can't bring about our own deliverance. And the pain, the pain associated with the, the delivery that should have given birth to joy, right, has only given birth to additional misery. Verse 19, God says, your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out, literally means give birth to, right? The earth shall give birth to the dead. And that is something that is only possible by God. God himself will deliver them. Isaiah 54, listen to the language of Isaiah 54, verse one. Sing, O barren. He's talking about his people in captivity. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing, cry aloud, you who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate, in other words, more are the children of the Gentiles than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. And what the Lord is prophesying there is this birth, if you will, of the church where the Gentiles are saved. Um, more are those of the Gentile church than the remnant from among the thousands in Israel. It's a depiction of the Gentiles being included. Uh, turn to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. And it's just this, again, this picture of childbirth becomes really significant in speaking about the end of the age and the new heavens and the new earth, the gathering together of God's elect, his deliverance, his full and final deliverance of his people. Isaiah chapter 66, verse seven. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, 
She delivered a male child. In other words, again, this is not something that she's going to do in her own strength. This is something that God, God is going to do, right? Who has heard such a thing, verse eight? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. And again, speaking of birth here, um, the birth of Israel from her captivity in Babylon. As soon as Cyrus issued the decree, the people came out. Right? This was done by the spirit of God. That's Zechariah, not by might, not by strength but by my spirit, says the Lord. This was done by the spirit of God. Verse nine, shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? The Lord is the one who does it. Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? They came out a painfully small, if you remember that account, they came out from Babylon a painfully small in number. And that was because of their sin. Um, so when they came out of Egypt, there were vast numbers and they grew in the wilderness. Uh, in the New Testament, um, there was many at one point in the city of Jerusalem at Passover, they estimated upwards of, of 3 million Jews that, that gathered together in Jerusalem for Passover. So at this point in time, when they're coming out of Babylon, they're coming, I think the number uh, in Ezra, if I'm not mistaken, is, some, is around 42,000, 42,000 that came out of Babylon. So very painfully small in number coming out of captivity. This coming out of captivity in Babylon is not the restoration they're looking for. Right? When, they built, when they were to lay the foundation of the new temple, they laid that foundation, that old generation wept. And they wept because they understood the, the glory of the former temple. And they looked at the one that was being built and they said, this is not, this is not the temple that we've been promised. Right? This is not the restoration that we've been promised. That means that restoration is still future. So this is not, when they're coming out of ba Babylon, this is not the restoration that they're looking forward to. God will bring it about. However, verse 10, verse 10, 10, God says, rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed on her side. You shall be carried and be dandled on her knees like you'd bounce a baby on your knees, right? As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. God's going to see to it. God is going to be the one who delivers. And this deliverance that he's talking about is this glorious deliverance at the end of the age. It includes the Gentiles. God is going to complete the work that he began. He's going to complete that with a great deliverance, as it were, a great birth at the end of the age. If you remember that from Romans chapter eight, that birth metaphor being used there in Romans chapter eight, the whole earth is described as writhing and groaning in birth pains. The whole earth is groaning, the creation itself eagerly awaiting the revelation or the birth of the sons of God. All of that imagery of birth is fulfilled in the actual birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the woman, so to speak, the people of God give birth to the Messiah. Uh, we're gonna see that as we continue to work through our text. For now, however, the birth of which the Lord is speaking, the birth that is being pointed to in Revelation chapter 12, will be a birth that is under imminent and constant threat of attack. So this birth that is going to be brought about, 
This birth, uh, certainly the birth of the Messiah, there's a dragon waiting there to devour the child as soon as it's born. But when the woman goes off into the wilderness to deliver other offspring, they're under the threat of constant death, imminent attack. And that's something that goes on during this age. Revelation chapter 12, verse three. Another sign appeared in heaven and behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, 10 horns and seven diadems on his head. He, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was, it was born. So if the woman is the church, the people of God before and after the advent of Christ, then the dragon is the devil. Verse nine, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. We don't have to speculate that about that. The Bible tells us exactly who that devil, that dragon is. He's described in verse 10 as the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before God, before our God day and night. The same serpent who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, the same serpent who now persecutes the church, the same serpent who will one day work powerfully through the Antichrist to deceive, if it were possible, even the elect, that little serpent in the garden has now grown into a great fiery red dragon. So this is our great adversary. That statement, greater is he who is in the world, or greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, but greater is he who is in this world than you. <laughs> so we need to trust in the Lord. We need to trust in his spirit to help us as we battle uh, in this world in this age against our great adversary. He is the deceiver. In other words, he is actively seeking to deceive you. Do you acknowledge that? Right. Uh, he is the deceiver actively, actively working to deceive you. He is a murderer, was a murderer from the beginning. He wants you to spend an eternity. He wants to bring you to your eternal death. He is the diabolos. He's the slanderer. So he continuously and mercilessly slanders the truth. He's pictured in several ways in the Bible. And we'll look at some of those ways uh, next week as we consider the adversary, uh, if the Lord allows next week. For now though, brothers and sisters, we're to be aware of that. We're to be aware of the threat that is posed. If you remember the account of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, for example, uh, Herod, Herod sent his armed brutes out to uh, kill all the children under two years of age, trying to kill the Messiah. That's another example of, we'll look at that next week, if the Lord allows. Uh, that's another example of the dragon sitting by waiting to devour the male child. There are examples of that throughout uh, biblical history. We'll look at it in more detail next week. If you remember the Davidic line, when that wicked queen Athaliah, Athaliah takes the throne. She usurps the throne and has all the male heirs killed. It goes down to one, one child, Josiah. He's hid in the temple until he's ready uh, to take the throne. But the Davidic line reduced to one male son who was hidden. That's the serpent attempting to kill the seed of the woman, sitting there waiting to devour the child as soon as he's born. We have to, that's, that's a pattern, brothers and sisters, that is repeated during our age. That conflict is typological of the conflict that we face as a church against our adversary. So what is Peter then? Peter tells us what to do. First Peter chapter five, verse eight, Peter warns us, be sober, be vigilant, uh, 
because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's not an empty threat. That's a reality. Be sober, be vigilant. That adversary roams. He prowls like a lion seeking to devour. Peter says, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We're not alone in that conflict, amen? But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. What's the lesson to be learned? War is not the time for complacency with our enemies, <laughs> in particular with this enemy. He's a fearsome enemy. We're not to be complacent. We face many difficulties and we face a fearsome foe. And it's very simple because we walk by faith and not by sight. It's very simple to uh, be lulled into a sense of security or a sense of safety when there is a prowling predator uh, in our midst. War is no time for complacency with our enemies and we need God, the spirit of God to help us. So Revelation then, and that's one of the blessings and benefits of going through this book. Revelation becomes a manual for warfare. Revelation becomes um, a blueprint for battle as the church, uh, as worshipers and witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ uh, make their way through this age. We are to persevere through this age as faithful worshipers and faithful witnesses. The concern of Jesus Christ during this age is the faithful worship and the faithful witness of his, of his people. And we have to persevere in faithfulness in worship and in witness. And the book of Revelation then is to help us overcome. We know these things. We won't be caught off guard or surprised by them. We're to take these things to heart and pray that the Lord would help us to be overcomers. We're to pursue our worship. We're to pursue our faithfulness with, uh, pursue our worship and our witness with faithfulness, Amen as to be living sacrifices, right? To present our persons as living sacrifices. We do that for the glory of God. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the warning. <laughs> thank you for the reminder. Thank you for the revelation. Thank you for uh, disclosing these things to us so that we can um, see behind the curtain, as it were, into that realm which is imperceptible to our five senses and trust that according to your word, um, those spiritual realities are impacting and influencing uh, our circumstances in this age. And we see it. It's uh, as though we were uh, looking at the effects of the spirit. It blows where he wishes and we don't see where he's coming or where he's going to, but we see the effects of it. We see the wind blowing through the, the leaves as it were. And we see the, the work or the influence of this realm in the same way. We see its effects. Uh, we see the working of Satan. Uh, we're not ignorant of, it, ignorant of his devices or his schemes. And help us, Lord, not to be lulled into a false sense of safety or security uh, and to, to let our guard down when your scripture everywhere warns us to be vigilant. Help us to be vigilant, Lord. Help us to, um, to, be, to be watchful as you've called us to be watchful. Help us to put on the full armor of God so that we may stand uh, in the day. And uh, help us, Lord, to fight in the battle with the weapons of our warfare that you've given us, which are mighty in Christ Jesus for pulling down strongholds. And I pray, Lord, that you would preserve us, you would cause us to endure, and you would bring us to a full and consummated victory with our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for how you protect 
your church, how you've grown and mature your church, how you have preserved her in the wilderness, as it were, feeding her there 1,260 days. We'll see as we work through this chapter. I'm grateful for those uh, precious revelations as well. We pray that we continue to preserve us, continue to help us and feed us and nourish us until the time that our Lord Jesus Christ returns or you call us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.